today, wherever you may be around the world, and thank you for your company once again on truth2u.org. That's truth2u.org. Joining me is the Director of Education and Counselling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca. That's jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome back to the program, Rabbi Michael Skoback. Shalom, Jono. And as always... It's a blast being here with you. It is a blast. It's always wonderful to have you on the program. Of course, you and I, we're continuing in our series exploring the book of Psalms, chapter by chapter, asking questions like who composed the psalm? What is it about? You know, what what's happening in the life of the author at the time of the composition? How does it apply to us today? Also, what would Christianity have us believe about each psalm? And how does that deviate from the original intent? I have a feeling we're going to be doing quite a bit of that in this particular chapter because we are in chapter 16. I'm going to read it. You ready? We're the intrepid explorers. <laughs> <We are>. <laughs> <laughs> this one, this has an interesting introduction. Uh, Miktam, a Miktam of David, obviously. We'll get back to that. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. My soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. They drink of their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their name on my lips. O Lord, you are my portion, my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lions have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. I, uh, my heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope for you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Miktam, Michael. Wow. Well, there are so many different ways that this is understood, but it's certainly, you know, the fact that there are, you know, at least a dozen ways this is understood just uh, reveals the fact that it's not so clear. Um, So I'll go through a few of the things that I've uh, discovered in my uh, research. Mm -hmm. Um, First of all, we're going to come in a couple of weeks from now, Psalms 56 to 60. (laughs) When we get there. In a couple of weeks. uh, (laughs) We've we've, we've taken a year to get this far, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it's like the rabbit and the hare. Or whatever the rabbit in the hair. The rabbit is a hair. The rabbit in this whatever it is. The, the, the snail, it's like some sort slow. of parable. Once upon a time, somewhere, it's something like that. Slow, slow but steady wins the race. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we're going to see that Psalms fifty-six to sixty also are, begin as a nichtam, uh-huh. and. Uh, some of the commentaries simply say that it's not clear what it is. We don't know what this word means. So that's the easiest answer. Um, but there are some very fascinating possibilities. First of all, in the Septuagint, the Targum Shivim, mm-hmm. so they render Mikhtam uh, as stelographia, which is an inscription that's engraved on the pillar of stone. So it's some kind of inscription, uh-huh. and the Targum, which is the the, the, the Septuagint, is the tra- translation into Greek. The Targum is the translation into Aramaic, uh-huh. 
and they render it as Galifa, which is an inscription on stone. So those two, okay. you know, ancient uh, translations, they take us in that direction. Now, why would this particular psalm and 56 to 60, why would these particular psalms be engraved on stone as opposed to other psalms? You got me swinging. Mm. Um, some say that Michtam is similar to the word Michtav, just the last letter is different. Mm-hmm. Michtav would be like with a V at the end. Uh, v is in Victor, and Michtam here ends with an M, is in Michael or Mary or whatever. Mm-hmm. So uh, a Michtav is a letter, and we know that in the book of Isaiah, chapter 38, verse 9, Hezekiah's prayer is called a Michtav. So maybe in the same way that um, you know, we see at least somewhere else in the Tanakh that a prayer is called, is referred to as a mikhtav, a letter. So maybe a mikhtam, uh these psalms are also some kind of a letter. When, when you say uh, a letter, you mean like a, a, an address to another person. Yeah. I uh, mean, again, uh, it begs the question, why are these particular psalms, you know, referred to as a letter, hmm. um, you know, as opposed to other psalms? So not clear. Um, some say, this is a popular among Jewish commentaries, mm-hmm. that the word mechtam is related to the expression ketem paz, paz, ketem paz, mm-hmm. because the last three letters in mechtam are chaf taf mem, which is ketem, which means fine gold. And you see that in Shir Hashirim, Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 11. And so why would this be called a psalm of fine gold. So, so basically what it's saying is that this is a psalm which was very precious um, and a very dear one to David. Again, begging the question, why yeah. is 16 and 56 to 60 so special and mm. so precious that they're referred to as fine gold? Um, some say that Michtam is some kind of obscure musical arrangement or some kind of unique instrument. And, you know, that wouldn't present us with any big questions because we've seen that a lot of the psalms were played on a certain instrument or had a certain musical arrangement. And so this is similar in that way. Um, Some say that michtam is somehow related to the word for crown. And they say that because David repeated this psalm so often, it was so special to him, that it became like a crown. Again, why... This psalm so special, as well as the ones later on. Um, the Talmud has a fascinating take on this word michtam. They divide it in two, and they read it as mach and tam. How do you like that? Hmm. So mach would mean um, humble, and tam would mean innocent. So this is a psalm by someone who is humble and innocent, and David might be described like that. Again, begging the question why these particular psalms have that mm. uh, right beginning. Um, Samson Referral Hirsch, who's always got, you know, anyone that wants to read an incredible commentary to psalms. So Hirsch has got uh, an amazing commentary because he's so uh, incisive in terms of the Hebrew language. So he says that michtam is related to the word ketem, which means a stain. Um, and you find the verb form of this in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 22, nechtam, uh, which means basically stained. And he has a very strange take on this. 
you know, when something is stained, like especially if it's like a blueberry stain or, mm-hmm. or, or pomegranate stain, it's not coming out. And so um, he sees this, uh, it's very creative actually, that by stain, it's almost like this is a permanent, uh, you know, song. It's like not going away. Which takes us and back so, to, to an inscription really, doesn't it? Yeah, but it's not just an inscription because some inscriptions, you know, they could be erased or if it's in stone, you could break the stone. But he True. seems to be saying here that this is the kind of, it, it's a stain that it's like, it's permanent, like a permanent stain. Just throw away that shirt. And so he, what he says is that this psalm was recorded as an everlasting memorial, um, like a tenet. He calls it a tenet to which uh, David would adhere forever. Now, again, it begs the question why these particular psalms get this um, superscription of Nichtam. I don't know. So it seems to me that all of the you know uh, offerings, all of the explanations – leave us a little bit unsatisfied because they, they none of them really explain um, why, you know, this particular psalm, and then you have to go to 56 to 60, are also michtam. I mean, you could, once we get to the end of this psalm, we might see why this psalm is so special, why it's like fine gold, why David, you know, held this up as a permanent banner. I mean, there are you can, you know, suggest why, you know, as opposed, let's say, to the earlier psalms that we've done, where he's basically groaning about, you know, evil people and wicked people. It's not very, you know, positive. It's not the kind of thing that, you, you know, you, you can imagine someone's going to want to sing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. But this psalm is quite upbeat, and it's very positive, and it's very joyous. And so you can imagine maybe... A, a joyous psalm, um, and it's very beautiful. I mean, what we're going to be seeing are, um, is, you know, ultimate joy for David on many levels, both physically and spiritually, and in this world and the next world. So maybe this that would answer the question that, you know, this psalm is super important to David, and he sang it all the time, and it was very precious to him, and maybe it was so precious he ins- he inscribed it on stone. And uh, there was a special musical arrangement for it, and it was like fine gold, and he wore it like a crown. Mm. And, you know, so maybe it is super special. Now, we haven't studied 56 to 60 yet, and I don't know if we're going to be able to, uh, you know, give the same parallels, perhaps. Yeah, but when we get to those, we'll see. We'll see. So the, the first verse, preserve me. Oh God, for in you I put my trust, my my soul you have said to the Lord, and there we have the, the tetragrammaton in the name of God, and then it says, you are my Lord, and I, I assume we can say, uh, you are my master, uh, my goodness is nothing apart from you. It, it You know, it, it's not an easy verse to uh, render, and it's very interesting that so many of the Christian translations that I looked at um, insert the word my soul here into this verse. Ah, I do see that uh, that is in italics, yeah. Yeah, it's not there. And the reason that they have to insert it is because it's almost impossible to understand what is going on around here, meaning that in the first verse, you know, the first exp- exclamation, David says, you know, protect me, guard over me, God, because I seek refuge in you. And then the next statement, you know, you have said literally – Amart la Lashem, you have said to the Lord. So if David was speaking, protect me, O God. So when he he says now, you have said to the Lord, 
who is David talking to or mm. about? Mm. It's 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 very strange. So almost everyone assumes that he's he's sort of speaking now to his uh, his soul. He sort of turns to his soul, and the question is why? Why does he turn to his soul now? So it's it's not so easy to understand. One of the proofs, by the way, that he that that this makes sense is because the word for you have said is written in the feminine form. Um, if it was really in the masculine, it would be amarta. I mean, I, if David was speaking, you mm-hmm. know, normally about himself, but amart is feminine, and we know that the word for soul is feminine. Uh. So, right? So, but you don't need the grammar. I mean, just, just you're almost forced into saying that, you know, we, he, unless he's got multiple personality disorder, you have to say that he's speaking, you know, he's addressing his soul. And what's fascinating is that in the previous verse, um, when when he says that I take refuge in you, God, it uses the word El, Shamrani El, protect me El, that's the uh, mm-hmm. word for God in the mm-hmm. first piece. But now it uses the tetragrammaton. Mm-hmm. So some of the commentaries suggest that, you know, what he's making clear now is that he's sort of making it very, very clear who he's speaking about. Because L is a term that can be used not just for the Almighty, but false gods Mm -hmm. are referred to as Elohim. Mm -hmm. Um, El can also refer to, or Elohim can refer to, powerful human beings. Mm -hmm. It can refer to judges. Moses was called Elohim. So he he sort of clarifies now, um, you know, David turns to his soul and says, um, you know, when you had just said, preserve me, God, David is saying here, you were referring to the Almighty, to the Tetragrammaton, to the Lord. And um, and it seems that it's sort of repeating um, or clarifying what was said in the previous uh, piece. Um, and then he says that his expression here is so interesting. He says, um, my good is from none but you. And some understand this to mean that that really you're not obligated to benefit me, God. Um, I'm just a servant, and I don't deserve any reward for serving you. So really, anything you do is pure kindness. It's pure grace that you're giving me. Um, you know, uh, but that, that's really the, the sense, especially in, in Hebrew, of the Tatragrammaton. It's always you know, a loving kindness, mm. kind of God that relates to us in the most loving kindness kind of way. Um, but it's not, you know, it's interesting that it's not a, an entirely clear verse to pick apart. Um, it's sort of difficult, actually. It, and it doesn't get any more uh, clearer when we progress into the next verse. In, in fact, three and four, I found wild variations among different translations. Um, and, you know, some people have said that these next two verses are, I've seen this written, actually, are among the most difficult verses to understand in the entire Bible. Right. Okay. Uh, well, let, let me, I'll, yeah. again, I'll read what's in my New King James. You, you let me know what you've got in front of you. But verse 3, as for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Now, actually, I'll tell you what, let me read also, just to illustrate this, I've got in front of me the um, Jewish study Bible. As to the holy and mighty ones that are in the land, 
My whole desire concerning them is that those who espouse another god may have many sorrows. Okay. Mm. I mean, it continues on verse 4. Uh, I will have no part in their bloody libations, it says in this translation. Their names will not pass my lips. Okay. That seems to be one certainly legitimate way of reading this. What do you got? Um, so, I mean, I'll try to reduce all of the different uh, approaches to two, really. And um, the first one is uh, is sort of the more common one, I think. Um, you'll find Rashi suggesting this reading. But basically, um, that David admits here that the kindness that God shows to him, that God shows him, is for the sake of his righteous ancestors. Meaning it's an expression of David's humility to say that, um, you know, all the kindness God shows him is because of all the righteous uh, ancestors, the ones that are um, in the earth, mm -hmm. uh, the people that have gone before him. Some say it's not in the earth, but on the earth, meaning that some say that here David is expressing his desire and his love for all those holy and mighty people who fear God, who either have long gone and they're buried in the earth, or David is expressing his love for all the God-fearing people who are alive in the in the world today, mm -hmm. um, and then it's transis it, I'm sorry, it transitions over to the next verse where it says, and, and now contrasting um, those who fear God from the, from the verse we just did, and it contrasts it to those who hurry after other gods um, and they place their faith in other gods, mm -hmm. and so. You know, these two verses, you have basically um, uh, David, David expressing um, his attachment to uh, all the holy people, uh, either who passed before or who are now living in the world. Mm -hmm. But the I saw another very, very unusual approach in a, in a commentary called the Das Mikra, and the way they read it is the, in, in the following way. They say, um, when it speaks about the holy ones that are, in, that are on the earth mm -hmm. and the mighty ones that everyone desires, they read it as this is referring to the idols that people regard as holy. Right, right. Meaning it's not, not, regarding, not, not speaking about holy. It's sort of like right. in air quotes. Now, look, I was, let me interrupt you there for a second because that rings true. Because when you pointed out to me uh, of course, that my soul in verse 2 is in italics. It's not actually there. It's imposed upon the text to enable yes. David to be speaking from his own heart. My soul has said, you know, you, um, uh, to the Lord that you are my Lord. What if David in, uh, in verse 2 and verse 3 is talking about someone not reflecting his own thoughts, not reflecting his own heart, his own soul, but rather is saying, you have said to, to, uh, to God, uh, you are my Lord, uh, my goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, or the idols, or the or because it says the holy ones who are mighty on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom uh, is all my delight. Now, with that in mind, and, and I've got saints here in the, in the New King James, having grown up in the Christian tradition, Michael, it really, I, I can put um, uh, Catholicism, for example, having been brought up in the, in the Protestant tradition, I can put um, uh, Catholicism into that box, if you like, 
because I can see Catholics saying, "Oh yes, there is there is God, there's there's uh, you know the, the God the Father, and and we have all the saints in whom my my soul delights." But then David goes on to say, and he seems to switch here: "Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after other gods." That was very much the Protestant position, that we would look at the Catholics and go, well, you've got all these other gods, you call them saints, but you find uh, comfort and delight and power in those saints. And then it goes on to say, and and uh, their drink offerings of blood, I will not offer, nor take up their name, the name of those saints on my lips. I, I could easily put, uh, uh, put that... Um, uh, the Catholics, if you like, into that box with that uh, Protestant mindset that I grew up with. Interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, you could see these verses as polemical in that way. I mean, in terms of, you know, the psalm, what becomes difficult is um, understanding really the the flow from one verse to the next, meaning that if the the, the first verse in this dyad, right, is mm-hmm. referring to holy people and righteous people and David being attached to them and desiring them. And, you know, he's sort of expressing the connection with those who are holy. Um, why does it say in the very next verse, you know, let their idols multiply? Who, why, <laughs> how does it go from one to the other? You know, if they were holy people, why, why does it speak about their idols and, you know, those who cling to another god? It's hard to really see how one verse flows into the next, and that's probably what leads the Das Mikra, and I guess others, to say, no, that this verse here, the first one, is sort of tongue-in-cheek, it's sarcastic, and it's saying, yeah, you know, to all those Hmm. that people regard as holy, and to the mighty about who people say, all of my desire is in them, it goes on in the next verse to say, Right. Um, let their idols multiply, and and the word in Hebrew for idols is very interesting. By the way, it's atzvosam, which means sadness. Right, meaning that the the Hebrew Bible often has derisive terms for idols, mm-hmm. and uh, sometimes it, it, it uses the term for dung uh, is one of the words for idols, um, and here it uses the word in many places in Psalms their sadness, because it's assuming that anyone that's connected to idolatry can't be really happy. So it's, if it says in the previous verse, you know, if it's speaking about um, people that attach themselves to idols and to, you know, um, people's desire being for, uh, you know, these idols which they regard as holy, the next verse is sort of knocking them and saying, let their idols multiply, their sadness multiply, those who cling to another god, right? David says, I will not offer um, their libations of blood. I'm not going to do that. But you see that that this is an attractive way of understanding verse, I guess, two in, in the Christian Bibles or three in the Hebrew Bible um, to say that, you know, this verse is referring to idolatry because the very next verse speaks about idolatry mm. and and the the traditional jewish reading like rashi mm-hmm. right which says that no um to the holy that are in the land right meaning that david says that all of my desire is towards these people who are holy either my ancestors or the people living today that are holy so why would the next verse say let their idols multiply mm. these people don't have idols 
So Rashi would say that, well, no, one verse is really coming to contrast another verse, meaning that, A, um, there are those people who are really holy, and you know those are the people that my heart really is connected to and I desire them, right? As opposed to those who worship idols and you know and they cling to another god and david says them i'm not going to offer their libations of blood mm-hmm. so it, it, either way it doesn't read uh, cleanly it's 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 difficult to parse these two verses um but those are the two major approaches that i've seen okay all right verse five. O lord you are my portion my inheritance and my cup you maintain my lot uh, verse 6, the lions have fallen to me in, un, in, in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. Um, so here we have uh, uh, David reaffirming his position and, uh, and a contentness in his position. Is that fair? Yeah, and I think that's really, this, this is the major thrust of this psalm. David is express, expressing the fact that because he's connected to God, he feels wonderful. He's mm. got a great life. And that's the, again, I think that's one of the reasons why so many of the uh, commentaries saw this word michtam as David expressing something that was very near and dear to himself. You know, I don't think that, that you know, bemoaning or cursing the wicked people was something that David relished going back to over and over and over again. But here, the psalm is just focusing on his, you know, putting himself uh, under the wings of God and and living a life where he feels God is protecting him and feeling connected to God, um, feeling that God is his portion. That's really over and over and over again. He's expressing, when you think about it, the major uh, idea of any spiritual person. And David was certainly someone who was connected to God. And this is, you know, how how he's able to feel so positive. And, you know, don't forget that David had a very difficult life, um, you know, one of the most difficult lives you can imagine. Mm. Everyone's after him. Everyone's persecuting him. Everyone's going after him. Not just people that are strangers, but his own family. And, you know, he's got it very, very rough. And yet he says, notwithstanding all of this, you know, we're going to see coming up very soon, you know, he walks through the the valley of the shadow of death. He doesn't have any worries because he's connected to God. And so this psalm, you know, every single verse is just speaking about his inheritance, his portion, um, you know, is due to the fact that he has God. Mm. Um, he's, he's living with an awareness of God. Um, and, uh, and it continues, verse 7, I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night. Se- I've got night seasons, which I found curious, but I assume that just means, you know, in the sleeping hours, um, you know, my heart confirms what God has uh, instructed me. Is that fair? Yes, l- Lelot is, is nighttime, yeah, Lelo. literally. Fair enough. Now, here <laughs> at verse 8, Okay. Michael, uh, it also happens to be quoted uh, in in a way in uh, Acts chapter two. This is the address of Peter uh, giving a sermon, if you like, the sermon of Peter in Acts chapter two of the New Testament. Uh, he takes from this, but uh, verse eight: I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand; I shall not be moved. Can we stay on eight? Let's stay with eight. There's eight. Go for it. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm staying with eight because. Um, it's one of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Ah. Um, I, I have it actually on my desk sitting in front of me. You have it inscribed on, my, on a miktam. 
Yeah, I do. It. I, I literally have it inscribed. It's, there you it's go. actually um, a friend of mine, actually, Yoshua Karsh, translated it like this. Um, I've set God before me always. And he says that what this means is turn yourself toward God, face him, move toward him. I may not be able to see his face, but I must show him mine. And so um, this idea of shiviti Hashem l'negdi tamid, um, I've set the Lord always before me. Um, this is actually inscribed. If you go into almost any synagogue in the world, this is often what is written on top of the Holy Ark mm-hmm. in the front of the synagogue. Um, you know, the idea that we want to have a, an awareness of God before ourselves at all time. And the code of Jewish law, you know, that in Judaism, you know, we, we live our lives. Basically, the, the guidebook is the code of Jewish law, which sort of um, codifies all the laws of the Torah. And at very, the very beginning, the very first line in the first chapter of uh, the first book of the Code of Jewish Law begins by quoting this passage from Psalms. I've set the Lord before me at all times. This is the major guidepost of all of the Torah. Everything that we do is a way, all of the Torah, basically, you know, the, the word mitzvah, commandment, really means a binder, a connector. Everything the Torah commands us to do is supposed to connect us to God. Um, the, you know, the idea of always having God before us, the, the great rabbi from Kutsk used to always ask rhetorically, where is God? And he would say, wherever you let him in. That's where God is, mm-hmm. wherever you let him in. Um, I always tell this story. I, I'm very fond of a story I heard about this young student in a rabbinical school in Europe. Um, and it's like a sort of a very rational school, very sort of um, rationalistic school very intellectually rigorous and he says to his teacher that he heard that in Meserich which was the seat of the Hasidic movement he said he heard there's a fire burning in Meserich you know the, the, the Hasidim were the ecstatic Jews they weren't simply you know intellectual and uh, his teacher was making fun of him and saying what do you have to go there for you're in a rabbinical school we're studying all day long what else is there to do anyway this, this student runs away to Meserich and he comes back three years later and his teacher says to him, oh, look who's here, the big shot from Meserich. So what did you learn when you were in Meserich? What did you learn there? So the student says, you know, teacher, in Meserich, I learned how to read minds. So the teacher, the, his teacher says to him, read minds? <laughs> he says, you know how to read minds? What am I thinking right now? So the student said, oh, Rabbi, I know that you're meditating on this verse which says, Shiviti Hashem Negdi Tamid, I've set God's presence before me at all times. And his teacher said, I wasn't thinking about that. <laughs> and the student said, That's why I ran away to measure. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I'll just share one more way of looking at this, by the way. The word Shiviti, which is the first <laughs> word in this verse, um, I've set, I've placed. In, in Hebrew, the word Shaveh, means to be equal. Mm-hmm. Um, in modern Hebrew, the word hishtavut, for example, means equanimity. And so the Baal Shem Tov, who was the, really the founder of the Hasidic movement, read this verse as saying, shiviti, I have equanimity, meaning everything in my life is, is the same. Everything is equal, right? Meaning whether things are going good or whether they're going, going bad, it's all, it's all good, basically. It's all equal. Why? 
why is there equanimity? Why is everything equal to me? Because I've set God before me at all times. Um, so it's it spiritually, this is an incredibly, you know, uh, it, it's almost an emblematic verse in the Bible. It, mm-hmm. It's so important. It's so powerful. And then David continues to say, um, he is at my right hand, and so I'll not stumble. And, you know, this idea of having God at your right hand, um, it comes up many times in the Bible. For example, in Psalm 121, verse 5, where it says, God is your keeper, God is your shade at your right hand. Um, and what it's really speaking about, this is all sort of harking back to a word that comes up in the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over again, which is the word devekut. Um, devekut is really, it means attachment, um, to be attached to God. And it's extremely daring when you think about it, that the Bible speaks about being attached to God. Because if you go back to Genesis, it's really the first time the word appears is in the beginning of Genesis where it says, therefore every man shall leave his mother and father and attach himself to his wife, cleave to his wife. And, you know, so here you have a word that the Bible uses for the first time in terms of the intimacy between a man and his wife. And that's the very same word that the Bible uses in the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over again in terms of what we're supposed to be seeking in a relationship with God. We're supposed to be seeking that kind of attachment um, and constant awareness, constant awareness of God. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I didn't want to skip over this verse, but I wanted to say one more thing when you brought up the book of Acts chapter 2. Because we're going to see you know, in the coming verses how this – the next few verses became for the uh, for the New Testament, you know, their one of their uh, proof texts mm. for um, the the resurrection of Jesus and uh, related ideas. But what's interesting is that Acts chapter two, verse twenty five, I think makes a mistake by um, starting here. Meaning, uh, um, it's interesting that uh, Luke, who we think was the author of Acts, he would have been much better off, you know, quoting from this psalm, but starting in the next verse, meaning starting in verse 9. Because when you think about it, um, I'm going to read at least my translation from Acts. I don't, I don't know if yours is different, but I'm going to be reading from the ESV version, the English Standard Version. Okay, I've got mine um, open. Let's go. So, so the, the previous verses, before verse 25, speak about Jesus. I mean, clearly about Jesus. And then it says... In Acts chapter 2, verse 25, for David says concerning him. Mm. Now, the implication is concerning Jesus, meaning that the author of Acts is clearly stating right out, right after speaking about Jesus, that David speaks concerning him. And he quotes now from verse Mm 8, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Now, what does it mean, at least from from Luke's point of view, that David speaks concerning Jesus? Now, is Jesus supposed to be saying here, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken? Or is the implication that, that David here is saying, I saw the Lord always before me? Now, he is now, at my right hand. And it should be pointed out that Lord, again, is the Tetragrammaton. So is then, in that case, is David saying that 
that Jesus is God? Uh, it's I, I see a point. Well, that's a question. Uh, the question is, who is speaking here? Who says I saw the Lord? Mm. Because in, in what 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 um, Luke inserts here before quoting the verse is. David says concerning him, and obviously him means Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me. Is David saying that about Jesus, or is Jesus supposed to be speaking here? Mm. And it, it's very, very difficult, to, to, I think, to parse the, this verse, uh, Psalm you know, 16, verse 8, in terms of the book of Acts, because it really doesn't make any sense, I think, either way you try to read it. Um, you know, again, I think that Luke would have been serving himself much better by skipping this verse and going on to the next verses, which really become the source material for his claims about the resurrection. But what does it mean here that, that David says, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken? Is David supposed to be speaking here about Jesus as the Tetragrammaton? Or is um, Jesus here speaking about seeing the Lord always before him, for God is at his right hand. I, I'm not really clear how um, Luke here intends for this to be understood. I, I'm just, as you're, as you're pointing this out, I'm reading the, uh, the study notes uh, in the New Testament here on, on this particular passage. Uh, Peter knew that no one could dis- dispute the point he was about to make from Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11, in which the Messiah is described as not decaying, because David had been buried and had not come back to life, the psalm had to be speaking about someone else, David's heir. Uh, Peter pointed out that this heir is Jesus, who was put to death and resurrected. Not only had Jesus been raised from the dead, uh, he is now at the right hand of God. That's quoting from uh, verse 8. So then what the, what the, new, the, the new King James Study Bible is saying is that David is seeing Jesus at the right hand of God. Therefore, this is not Jesus's voice. Well, oh, hang on. Well, hang on. <laughs> well, maybe not. Because- it, it's, it sounds like from what you were reading that I saw the Lord is Jesus speaking. Jesus speaking, and David for he is, is at my right hand that I may not yes. be shaken. Ah, well, see, then it can right. be. All right. Right. So it is. It's very obscure, isn't it? Yeah, it's not easy. Um, I, I, again, I, if, if I was the king of the forest, I would have, I would have, I would have advised, uh, Luke to have skipped this verse or Peter. <laughs> Luke is quoting Peter apparently. Well, the, the writer of um, Luke, we don't even know who the writer of Luke is, but the, the writer of Luke, we assume is the writer of Acts. Boy, this could go on forever. But, uh, if he does start in, uh, in, in verse nine, he, he gets it wrong straight off the bat because it says, therefore well, my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Right. I mean, that, that we're going to have more problems as we go along, but I just think that verse 8 to me just would have been better to leave out. <laughs> right. But no one consulted me before they wrote No, that, so. as they should have, but they didn't. And they're paying the penalty anyway. Okay. So let's go on to 9. Okay. Well, this is, as, as I said, so in, uh, in the Jewish Bible, at, at least in this Christian translation, therefore my heart is glad, uh, Psalm 16, 9, and my glory rejoices. My flesh will also rest in hope. But Peter... Uh, or the writer of Acts has Peter saying, um, therefore my uh, heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. So what's going on here? Meaning that um, in the previous verse, David obviously is speaking. No one doubts that. And David is saying that he sets God's presence before him at all times. 
And David says, right, that God's at my right hand, so I will not stumble. So this is very uh, easy to understand in terms of David speaking about himself. And then David goes on to say in verse 9, Therefore, my heart is glad and my soul rejoices. Mm -hmm. My flesh, too, dwells in safety. Now, what does David mean here? Why is David so happy and why is his soul rejoicing? And what does he mean by saying my flesh, too, dwells in safety? Um, they're really, and this is going to be uh, carried through in the, in the subsequent verses. But you know, the simplest way of understanding this psalm is that David here is thanking God. He's rejoicing in the fact that God has always rescued him. Mm-hmm. Meaning that even though uh, you know he's always been in great danger, even though he was always just you know one millisecond from being killed. God always rescued him. Hmm. God always saved him. Um, And we see that in the book of Psalms, um, this is a theme that comes up constantly, that God rescues David um, from danger. Hmm. Um, uh, Chapter 56, verse 14. um, You know, very clear. Um, Also in chapter 33, verse 19. Chapter 116, verse 8. I mean, David is constantly... Uh, and we saw it in the, in the earliest psalms from this book that he's constantly, you know, uh, rejoicing in the fact that God is rescuing him from his enemies. So you don't need to get too fancy when you, when you read this psalm in terms of understanding what David really means here. Um, now we're going to see that there are, that there is another way of looking at this, meaning that. Um, not only is David being thankful that God has allowed him to live and reach this moment, um, some people say that um, David is looking forward to the fact here. He's, he's anticipating the fact his soul is rejoicing because it will dwell in safety, meaning that he knows that he's not going to live forever. And so what, what he feels very confident about is the fact that his soul will live on and will live, uh, you know, in the presence of God. And so, you know, that also might be anticipated here. It's mm-hmm. going to become clearer in the, in the next verses. Um, but what's strange is, you know, why would, if this is speaking about Jesus, why would Jesus be glad that his soul is going to live on if he is an eternal deity? Mm. It's very difficult to understand. Like, if, he, if he's an eternal God, you know, sort of a no-brainer that he's going to live forever. So, you know, why is he expressing such joy and excitement um, about being able to live on? Mm. Um, That sort of is, uh, you would expect that that's sort of, um, you know, a a foregone conclusion. You know, you wouldn't be surprised. Um, So it's hard to understand, it really is difficult to understand. What I'm trying to say is, it's easy to plug David into these verses. It's very difficult to plug Jesus into these verses. It's sort of, you have to... You're pushing a square peg into a, a round hole. It mm. really is. It's, it's trying to force the issue, and it's 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 not very elegant. It, um, con- it continues on in verse ten. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your holy one to see corruption. Now, of course, in the in the New King James Study Bible, it's highly Christological. They put capitals all over the place, and so uh, your holy one. Uh, is capitalized at the beginning of each word. But what we have the writer of Luke um, having Peter say is, um, you shall not leave my soul in Hades, 
uh, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. Now, the concept of Sheol is is the grave. Is that fair? But the, the concept of Hades is an underworld. In fact, really, Hades is the name of the, I think, even a goddess of the, of the Greek underworld. So it's a, a very different concept. And I'm sure there are many Christian translations that probably say, you shall not leave, uh, leave my soul in hell. Uh, what did you get out of that? Well, look, you have two words here, and, and we know that, that you know, for people that are careful to study the Psalms, one of the things that comes up all the time is this idea of parallelism, that, you know, you have a similar concept that's sort of rephrased in different ways. And so here you have two words that are parallel. One is Sheol, mm-hmm. and one is Shachat. Um, you know, you, you will not abandon my soul to the netherworld or the lower world, Um you know, or allow your pious one to see the pit or to see the grave. So the the basic way of understanding this is that these are both references saying the same thing. to the death, to the mm. grave. Mm. And you know, it would be as I mentioned before, David expressing his thanks for the fact that God didn't allow him to die. Mm. God, uh, that God didn't allow him to be thrown into the grave, thrown into the pit. Um, however, um, you know, there are some rabbinic sources that see this not simply as a, um, term for the grave, but it it is seen at least in some sources as a name for, um, Gehenna, which is like, I guess, uh, um, you know, a form of the afterlife. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, but it's not the simple meaning of the passage and, um, if it is, meaning if it is referring to not just physical death, but it's referring to, let's say, being destroyed in the afterlife, David is saying, no, I'm not going to be destroyed in the afterlife. On the contrary, I'm going to live uh, you know, in the presence of God, meaning that he's looking forward to the fact that uh, there will be a world to come, that his soul will exist eternally. Um, you could say that David may be looking forward to here, um, because the Bible does speak about a belief in the resurrection of dead in the future, that his body will be resurrected. Um, it, it's even possible um, to even see this as David speaking about himself, that his physical body, when it is buried, because normally people that are buried decompose. Mm-hmm. And David might be speaking about the fact that his own body, when it's buried, will not decompose. You know, we have many stories, even from contemporary stories, where people that were buried and then were reinterred to be buried elsewhere, that they discovered, even after people were buried for decades, that their body had not decomposed. Mm -hmm. Um, It's quite amazing. Because of the conditions uh, in which they were uh, entombed, if you like, or, or buried. Uh, like the the physical um, conditions that that didn't allow the um uh the the, the decaying process to to occur is this no, what you're saying? No, um, because you know people that were would have been disinterred from the same area would have been decomposed. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, because their righteousness, meaning that we're not talking about just anyone who they uh, reinterred and found them to be complete and whole, but righteous people. Um, you know, there's an interesting verse in the book of Deuteronomy, which speaks about, you know, the plain meaning of the verse. It's in chapter 25, verse 15, 
which speaks about Evan Shlema Vitzedek, a um, a whole stone and a and a righteous stone, if you will, meaning talking about um, honest weights and measures, and so that's what the verse is really speaking about. But you have the in, in this verse the two words Shlema, uh, perfect or whole, and Sedek, you know, uh, meaning that the just uh, weights. Mm-hmm. But Sedek also means Sadik is righteous. Mm-hmm. And so they have found, and I, I actually once spoke to someone who actually witnessed this, that there was someone who was just a very honest person, scrupulously honest, and when they uh, dug up his body years later, they found that it was whole, it was complete, it hadn't disintegrated. And so they, they people that were digging up the body, that's what they quoted here, they said – Tzaddik, he's righteous, and therefore shalem, he's complete. He hasn't been decomposed. So it's possible that David was looking forward to any of these things, either that he wouldn't be killed um, you know, before his time, or that when he was buried, his body wouldn't decompose, or that when he was buried, um, his soul would, would meet his maker and live on with God forever, mm. um, ultimately to be resurrected. Um, what's interesting here is the artificial, um, you know, assumption that this is referring to one person other than David, meaning that, you know, the, the simple way of reading the psalm is that David is speaking about himself. And again, in one of the four ways I just mentioned, mm-hmm. and by extension, right, if, if he's speaking about um, God not allowing his pious one to see, to see the, the pit, meaning to see destruction, it would it would refer to actually anyone, not just David, anyone that was pious or righteous. The word here is chasidcha, your pious one. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting is that many Christian translations, because in Acts they render this word as holy one, um, you know, capital H, capital O, which it doesn't say. The, 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 that would be the word kadosh. Here it just uses the word chasid, which means someone that's pious or saintly. Not not someone that's holy, um, you know. When you capitalize it, H capital H capital O, only mm. the Almighty is the Holy One. But because the Book of Acts, you know, their rendering of this verse is to have Holy One, so there are quite a few Christian translations of Psalms that try to align this verse in Psalms with the way it was translated in Acts. So I didn't check that many translations, but I saw. In the King James Version, in the New King James Version, in the ESV, the English Standard Version, in the Amplified Bible, in the New American Standard Bible, in the New Century Version. I mean, numerous Christian translations just mistranslate this, and it doesn't speak here about God, God not letting his Holy One see destruction or see the pit, um, but the pious one. Mm. And in, in uh, some, actually, Hebrew texts, it's not clear, actually, what the Hebrew word is here. Some read it as chasidcha, your pious one, and some actually texts have it just by one letter difference as chasidcha, which would be plural, pious ones, right? Anyone that's pious. Um, and so it, it's not entirely clear um, if this is referring to David uh, specifically, but again, by extension, other pious people, or does the the verse itself speak about pious ones in the plural? Um, but it, it's you know it seems to me, I mean, in my humble opinion, that this verse is relatively straightforward, 
and that the Christian scriptures have to torture it in order to make it say something it's not really saying, um, or to make assumptions about it that it just simply are not borne out by the text. Hmm. Well, it ends with uh, verse 11, and we have here, uh, it says, You will show me the path of life. In your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Interestingly, uh, the writer of Acts has Peter ending early. It says here uh, in Acts 28, You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. Uh, seems to cut it short. Is there a reason for that? Do you think, or is it just didn't didn't want to write down the rest of it? Where, where is he cutting it short? I didn't, I didn't uh, catch that. You will make me full of joy in your presence, uh, as opposed to uh, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Oh, that is left out of the of verse. left out. Mm. Yeah, I don't know why. Actually, that's a good question. Yeah. Um, sloppiness. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, you know, here, this is obviously a very strange verse, meaning if this is speaking about Jesus, um, you know, why would God have to make known to him the path of life? Right? Mm. If, this is, if this is Jesus speaking, you will make known to me the path of life. I mean, why, if Jesus himself is part of the God, you know, is, is uh, the, God the Son, mm. why would God have to make known to him the path of life? Mm. And why would Jesus speak about closeness to God, right? That you will make known to me the path of life and your presence is fullness of joy. It's sort of, it's impossible to, look, it's not impossible to read this if you want to think about Jesus as a regular human being. Um, then it, it wouldn't be so impossible to read. But sure. if, if the understanding is that Jesus was not just a regular human being, but God in the flesh, um, it becomes impossible to understand this. You know, mm. why would he have to speak about closest to God if he himself is God? Um, so it really only makes sense if, if if this is really speaking about someone who is fully human. Um, and then it's it's really a beautiful ending to the psalm. That you know, in the psalm, you know, we had two major themes. Number one, that David expresses his constant closest to God and awareness of God. And that brings him tremendous joy. And that therefore, because of that closest to God and his joy, he has confidence that God will protect him and that God will not let him come to an ignoble end, meaning that God will save him from premature death and God will you know, ensure that you know, his soul will live on, uh, possibly that his body will not you know, see corruption in the grave. Although that would be, you know, there's no great need for that to happen. Mm. You know, the main benefit is for a person to feel confident that, you know, that in eternity their soul will be um, connected to God and will bask in that glory. And so he ends the psalm by saying, you know, how do I have, you know, this the, the possibility of having a relationship with God? It's because God made known to us the path of life. I mean, David is only, he's, he's not in reinventing the wheel here. He's not um, someone who's inventing how to, how to have a relationship with God. God has revealed to us the path of life, which is the Torah, God's revelation for how we're supposed to live with him and live a righteous life. Hmm. And therefore, with that Torah, with that guidance God gave us, in God's presence, we have fullness of joy. And we have the, the, the ability to be 
feeling close to God um, as if we're at his right hand. Um, and these are eternal pleasures. These are pleasures that are forevermore, he says. Let me, in closing, uh, I just want to ask you, I just want to go back and ask you a question uh, in regards to verse 4, because I don't think we touched on this. Um, what did you uncover? Did you uncover anything as to what this uh, drink offering of blood might have been back in the day? So they speak about the fact that um, um, th- that libations of blood were apparently offered to idols or that the um, worshippers of idols would would drink this blood. Um, I, I saw a number of suggestions as to what it's referring to. Um, you know, in the Torah, we have libations usually of wine. Hmm. Those, are, those are the libations. Um, blood were, you know, was not poured so much. You know, if we look at the at the scriptures, blood was usually sprinkled. It was mm-hmm. sprinkled on the altar, the sides of the altar. Um, and what was poured was usually wine mm-hmm. um, and sometimes water, actually. Um, but certainly, we didn't drink blood. It was one of the great prohibitions of the Torah mm. is against consuming blood. Yeah. So sometimes they, they, some of the commentaries say that, um, you know, that what David is mocking here is um, those who bring li- their libations of blood to their idols and actually end up drinking, or, or they speak about the idols themselves drinking the blood, meaning that when the um, idolaters, um, you know, pour the blood on their idol, you know, the idol ends up drinking the blood. Hmm. Um, so it, it's not really exactly clear what it means. Um, it's curious, isn't it? But but again, having for myself being brought up in the in the Protestant religion, uh, it the the thing that comes immediately to mind is the uh, the communion or the Eucharist. Yeah, and I think I have to check this now. But I think in Leviticus seventeen, let me just quickly check this. Um, I think there, there is, you know, it's very interesting that Leviticus seventeen speaks about improper sacrificing mm-hmm. um, it doesn't it's not, not the principles of sacrificing and um, it says no one among you shall eat the blood nor any stranger who dwells among you eat the blood I'm going I'm going earlier to four mm-hmm. um, what it says earlier is that if you bring a sacrifice improper meaning that you don't bring it to the proper place um, it's accounted to a person as if he shed blood mm. so it, it could be that maybe that's what's what's being referenced here, that these people who are serving idols, um, you know, it, 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 it sort of their their bloodshed is mm. spoken about as offering libations of blood. It may be a poetic way of tying back to Leviticus 17:4. I'm not sure. Um, I'm just speculating. It's interesting. Well, there it is. Thank you, my friend. Is there? There was. Have we covered it all? Was there anything else you wanted to highlight? Well, we can go on for another five or six hours. We could, but we can't. <laughs> <laughs> Psalm chapter sixteen. Thank you very much once again for your insight, my friend Michael Skoback from Jews for Judaism in Canada. Uh, the website again: JewsforJudaism.ca. JewsforJudaism.ca. I know you've been really flat out, really busy. Uh, a lot of lectures. Uh, what's what's coming up in Jews for Judaism? A lot more. <laughs> Just a whole lot more. You can find it on the website, right? Yeah, I'll be doing a lot of mini lectures um, 
coming weeks, meaning okay. that I'll be giving, instead of my normal 60 to 90 minute lectures, I'm going to be giving a whole bunch of 10 minute lectures. Ah. Um, yeah, that uh, sort of fast and furious. Okay. So those are, those are coming up. And, and details can be found on the website at chooseforjudaism.ca. Thank you so much for coming back on the program. We'll be back again sometime soon uh, for Chapter God 17. Willing. God willing. God willing. God willing. We'll see you very soon. Will do. You've been listening to Truth To You with me, John Ovandor. Join me on the coming Truth To You Israel tour. Details at our website, truthtoyou.org. That's truth, number two, letter U, dot org. Thank you for your company, and I hope you'll join us again. Until next time, shalom. Shalom.